0: Our broken pieces are an important part of our journey of growing in Christlikeness. A glorious pursuit of experiencing long-term change that only comes from following Jesus. It is an ancient journey of practicing the Christian virtues and living the truly abundant life as God defines it. A life made possible by God's grace, empowered by God's spirit and modeled by God's son. This is the beauty of becoming. Well, you are chosen, you are holy, and you are dearly loved. I hope you lived in that reality every day this last week. That's kind of where we left off last week. So glad that you're with us here this morning in the room and those of you joining us online as we continue on. You know, uh, last week that was kind of the the ending challenges to remember that truth, that reality that you live in. But last week was also the end of our 21 days of prayer and fasting. We've been hearing about how God has been moving um, in our midst as we were together seeking Him. We'd love to hear more of that if you're willing to share some of your experiences, if you would just uh, let us know at stories at cornwallchurch.com. This isn't like a, to brag, it's not a competition. It's, it's about celebrating what God is doing and has done, it's about encouraging one another. We'd love to have you uh, share with us those stories, and uh, we can uh, all be encouraged together as we continue to seek Him. I mentioned before our 21 days of prayer and fasting that one of the, thing, one of the things I was giving up was cookies, and it was kind of a ha ha ha. That wasn't a joke. That's a very serious thing for me. Cookies and I have an understanding. They're in the house, I eat them, all of them. And so I did it for 21 days. I mean, that was one of the things for 21 days, no cookies. And, and during those 21 days, we had a couple of funerals here. And after the funerals, there's receptions, and at those receptions, there's cookies. And I, I stayed away from them. After one of the funerals, I went back to my office and was studying. And Shar Hansen, uh, who puts on these, uh, she and her team put on these receptions, do a phenomenal job. She came back into my office and said, Pastor Bob, I saw that you left a little early. I brought these for you, a plate of cookies. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you are a tool of the devil right now. Uh, she is a sweet lady, but she is just a temptress. And I said... Thank you. And I, and I didn't want to hurt her feelings because she was doing this innocently. She set the plate of cookies down on my desk, and there they sat. And on her way home, it struck her. No, no, Pastor Bob's not eating cookies in these 21 days. And she felt horrible. And, and she came in the next day, and she knocked on my door, and she, she was, you know, like apologizing profusely. I'm so sorry I wasn't trying to tempt you. I, I'm sorry. I hope you didn't eat them. I said, I didn't, and, and all that. And, and so it, it was all fine. We kind of laughed about it. Wednesday, which was the first day after our 21 days, this last Wednesday, at the refuge uh, here in the auditorium after our time of worship and communion, she came up to me and she said, the fast is over. I said, yeah. And she said, you can eat cookies again. I said, yeah. She said, only one a day. And I said, well, and she said, I I baked you a cookie. I want you to see a picture of the cookie she baked me. (laughs) It's the size of a medium pizza. And I just want to tell you, I am not sharing that with anybody at all. This is my, uh, my reward. But the 21 days are, are an incredible time, what God has done in our lives and our midst. We'd love to hear about those things if you'd share those with us. You know, in the early 90s, uh, growing up, my mom was um, very much against motorcycles. We weren't allowed to have. We didn't have dirt bikes, mini bikes, any of that. In the early 90s, I bought my very first motorcycle. And for the last 30 years, I've had motorcycles. But in the early 90s, I bought this uh, used Suzuki Katana. And the guy I bought it from, he was a Western student, um, he threw in some, some accessories. There was a tank bag, there were saddlebags, a cargo net, a little radar detector. And one of the things that he also included was a helmet, which is a good thing because I didn't have a helmet. I'd never had a motorcycle before. Now remember, this is early 90s, and this helmet was... Like the brightest neon pink you can imagine with black streaks on it. A very distinctive helmet. You could not miss this helmet. So as I got my, my uh, motorcycle endorsement, began to ride my motorcycle with my pink helmet um, to church, to events, people began to equate that helmet with me. And I would hear some time to time. People at church would say, hey, I saw you this week on your motorcycle. I said, how did you know it was me? Uh, the pink helmet. Or yeah, I saw you out on Chuckanut this week, and well, how did you know it was me? Oh, the pink helmet. It, which was a good piece of accountability for me, because it meant that I would ride uh, hopefully within the speed limit. Well, down the alley from me, where I lived, um, there was a guy. His name was Lynn. Lynn had this this really sweet Jeep, the, like a CJ5. It was lifted, burly tires on it, no top. It was wide. It was really cool. And there were times when Lynn and I would switch. He'd say, hey, you can drive my Jeep for a day and I'll take your motorcycle. We did that on a few occasions. And one time after that, I took his Jeep back. He brought the motorcycle. I said, how was it? And he told me how fast he went, which probably wasn't a good thing. And then he said, I was downtown and some people were honking at me. And I was getting ready to tell him, oh, yeah, they thought. that.'" And he said, so I flipped them off and sped away. (laughs) And I said, no man, you, you can't do that. They, they, that. they think it's their pastor. You're wearing my helmet. You, when you're wearing my helmet, you're representing me. You can't do those things. To think, oh, my pastor just flipped me off and we leave out of town. That's not a good thing at all. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, we wear the helmet of salvation. A helmet that was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And with that helmet, Because we've been chosen, we've been set apart wholly, we are dearly loved, we represent Jesus Christ. And when we wear his helmet, we represent him with our life. Where we ended last week was this great verse out of Philippians chapter 3, verse 16, that says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Let us have a life that is congruent, in essence, with the helmet of salvation, with this privilege of being chosen, of being set apart, of being part of his family, being his sons and daughters. And that's what we're talking about in the series. And it's far greater than, than behavior modification. It's becoming. It's this, this transformation, the, the, the beauty of becoming, of being changed, this metamorphosis, this ongoing difference to, to begin to think like Christ begin to live like Christ, to be able to respond like Christ, to be able to prioritize like Christ, to be able to act like Christ, to be able to have more of Christ in us, this life of virtue, these virtues of Christ. And the verse we've looked at each week in this series out of 2 Corinthians 3 says this, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being, being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord— who is the Spirit. It's this ongoing transformation work where we are intentionally and incrementally, continually becoming more like Jesus Christ. Now as we talked about for our purposes in this series, the definition we're using for these virtues, these biblical virtues, these Christ-like virtues, are the attributes and attitudes of Christ what we see in His life, having that become more and more developed within us as we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. So the last two weeks, the first two weeks of this series, was really kind of laying the groundwork. It is the launch pad. It was setting us up. And for the remainder of this series, we're going to be looking at some different individual virtues that we find in the life of Christ that we're developing. Now, it's not an exhaustive list. There are others that we won't cover. But we're going to be looking at some of these virtues, one each week, that we can be, continue to, to grow and continue to pursue, uh, as it said in 2 Peter, to make every effort to add these things to us in increasing measure so that we will not be ineffective or unproductive in our knowledge of Christ. I mean, Jesus would teach, I mean, he taught incredible things. Jesus didn't waste words. He w- spoke truth. I mean, he is the truth. And some of the great truths of the Sermon on the Mount and different things that he said, but at the end of his life, kind of his last instructions were of first importance. Everything he said was of importance, but the last thing, it, they weren't throwaway words. They weren't just little, okay, parting uh, words on my way out. The, the last words, his last instructions were of first importance. It's called the Great Commission. That's what we, we refer to it as. And remember, it has happened after he's been crucified, buried and raised from the dead and the fact that he had died was buried and came back from the dead allows him to say these words all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me listen you can't make a statement like that unless you can back it up unless you can prove it and he already had all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me therefore he says because of his authority go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and the Holy Spirit. And then he adds this, it wasn't a tag on, it wasn't an optional piece. In verse 20, he says this, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He doesn't say, and teaching them to read everything that I've written down or simply to study or to memorize or to believe or to agree. He says, teaching them to obey. And this is our first virtue that we're going to look at. It's the virtue of obedience. In fact, I titled this sermon, A Great Place to Start, because I believe on this virtue of, of obedience, if we can understand this, grasp this, own this, begin to grow in this, then it will make it a lot easier, because it will apply to every other virtue that we look at as we come back to this obedience to being, coming more like Christ, and to having this virtue in our lives, and, and to have obedience. In the Old Testament, there was a There's an instance where King Saul was on in one of his military conquests and he had been instructed by the Lord to destroy everything, to take no plunder in in this conquest. And so he went and as he comes back, the prophet Samuel comes to him and says, you know, why were you disobedient? He says, no, 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 I, I did, I did everything that the Lord told me. I did exactly what was told. And Samuel says, well what's that I hear? It it sounds like the bleeding of goats and sheep and, and where did they come from? And Saul said, well, well, yes, but, but I brought those to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, which may or may not have been the case. And Samuel says, okay. He replied, he says, and we find this in first Samuel uh, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. Your obedience, your complete obedience is far more important than your sacrifices. And see, this is where religion comes into play, because religion always has taught, It's about sacrificing to appease or to assuage or to please the gods. It's always about sacrificing. And he says, listen, God's not about that. He wants obedience. And sometimes I think even in our mind with with maybe the lies of the enemy, we begin to think or conclude that sacrifice is the way that God is pleased. And, And we begin to put this together, that there's a direct correlation with how miserable I am and how pleased God must be. Like, the worse this is for me, the better it is for God. 21 days of fasting. It was horrible for me, but God must be pleased. Some of you right now, I'm going to church. I hate this, but God must be pleased. And if the sermon is boring or long, you get extra credit. That's how you think. So I'll continue to try to help you get extra credit. <laughs> you know, well, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to throw a couple bucks in the plate when it comes by. And it's not my fault if they don't pass the plate. So, i am you know, I, I just try. And it's like this sacrifice. And, and Samuel says, listen, it's not about the sacrifice. It's not about just giving up and, and just being miserable or doing some compliance here. It's about obedience, which in some of our minds, again, has just as negative as a connotation as sacrifice. You know, obedience. We immediately think of dog obedience school. Is that what it is? We're supposed to have these little things that we've learned to be obedient like a dog is. You know, the master puts a little biscuit on the dog's nose and says, "Now wait. Okay. And it's like, it's this big party trick. Is that how this works? That God just wants us to be obedient like some dog that's gone through the, through the school or through the courses like that? Not at all. And let me just suggest this to us that if we ever begin to think that being obedient to God is just about him doing tricks with us, about him having control, about him, you know, making us do what he wants, can I throw this out? Could it be that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived? of the things that God has prepared for those who love him? Could it be that why God wants obedience is not so he'll feel like he's in control, is so we can experience the goodness, the blessing, the life that he created us to experience. See obedience has always been attached to blessings. And I want to just, before we go any further, I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel here. I'm not saying be obedient so you'll, you know, have more money than you know what to do with and you'll never get a cold. That's not what I'm talking about at all. But obedience to the things of God, God's will, God's purposes, God's plan, His provision, His protection leads us to this blessed life. If you were with us last fall, we studied lessons from the life of Joshua. You may remember that. And early on in that series, we saw this verse in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Uh, These are the instructions uh, from God to Joshua. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Why? Why would you do this? So you can control me? So you're in charge? No, that you may be successful wherever you go. Obedience is attached to the blessing. And you might push back and say, well, but Bob, that, you got to be careful because that was written for them in that situation. They're going to the promised land. You're absolutely right. But what about when Jesus said in John 15, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this. Why? So I'm in control and you have to obey me? No. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. I mean, this is right on the heels of when he says, I'm the vine, and you are the branches, remain in me, and I will remain in you. He says, listen, if you will obey me, you're going to experience my love. The same way I obey the Father, and I experience his love. And on top of that, it's not miserable life. It's so that my joy will be in you, and your joy will be complete. Don't you see how obedience is attached to the blessings, the love, and the joy of Christ? What we have to ask ourselves is this. Do I believe and trust that God knows what's best for my life? Do I believe and trust that God wants what's best for my life? Now, I've quoted my friend uh, Bill Giovanetti. He's a pastor in Redding, California. Quoted this before, but his quote is this. There is nothing good for me outside of the will of God. There's nothing good for me outside the will of God. If there's something that's good for me, it's God's will. Outside of God's will, it's not good for me. William Law, who was a a priest in the Church of England in the 18th century, he said, seek eternal happiness by doing God's will. Continue to seek true happiness, true life, true blessings, true joy, true love, by doing God's will. So today what I want us to do is that I want us to look at three stories, one out of the Old Testament, two out of the New Testament, where, one, someone learned this truth, someone experienced this truth, and someone modeled this truth. I want us to look at these three stories, and, um, and there's a seven-word phrase In the second story that I really hope you'll walk away with today. This is like, pardon the the, uh, stealing this, but this is the phrase that pays. This phrase that we're going to look at, these seven words, if we can grab a hold of them and they can grab a hold of us, it will make our life in walking with Christ so much better. It will make us attaining these virtues at a greater level so much better. But let's start with the first story out of the Old Testament. It's a story about a guy named Naaman. It's actually probably really pronounced Naaman uh, because of a double A, but, but that doesn't work if you're playing the name game with Naaman. You know, Naaman, Naaman, Bobaaman, Bananapha, that works good. Naaman, Naaman, mama, that just messes the whole thing up. So we're going to just stick with Naaman today, if that's all right. All right, we're going to look at the, his story in 2 Kings chapter 5. It starts off this way. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. So he's not Jewish. Not a part of the nation of Israel. He was a great man in the sight of his master, the king, and highly regarded because through him, the Lord, Yahweh, had given victory to a ram. He was a valiant soldier. Now, right off the bat, you see that while he's not a part of God's chosen people, he's not Jewish, he's not a part of Israel, God blessed him. And on top of that, he is highly regarded, he is revered, he is respected. His boss, the king, holds him in high regard. He's been decorated as a, as a valiant warrior. He's been successful. Everything is going right for this man. He's got it all going on. But then there's one little additional piece of his bio that we haven't seen at this point. And it says this, but he had leprosy. That changes everything. Now, in some of your Bibles, there's a little letter or a little asterisk. You go down, it says leprosy is a term that's used for all kinds of skin conditions. It was kind of an umbrella term that was used yes, that's true. But in the context of this story, and you see the measures to which they go, I'm guaranteeing you that what he was experiencing was not a rash. It wasn't just a little bit of hives. It wasn't just an infected cut that hadn't healed up yet. My belief in this one is that he did have leprosy, Hansen's disease, as we refer to it. Hansen's disease was this dreaded disease that would caused people to, to lose fingers and hands and feet and eyes and ears and nose. I mean, it's just the, the impact and, and these uh, abrasions on their skin and all of this stuff. And it was, it was rendering them unclean. Dr. Paul Brand, who's actually from the Seattle area, did a lot of work. Some breakthrough understanding about Hansen's disease is that it actually affected the nerves. And so what might happen is... Someone who has this disease can't feel their fingers or their toes, and so maybe they grab something out of the fire and don't realize they're their hands, or they smash their finger and don't realize it's smashed, or they cut themselves and don't even feel it, and because of that, it gets infected, and then they lose these toes and fingers and hands, and, and it affects their, their, entire, uh, their t- entire body. But it was seen as a curse. It, it had such a stigma to it. You know, I don't know that when I was in college, we cared that much about being politically correct, and I'm not proud of that, but we didn't, but the reality is we used to make leper jokes, and part of that is, because leprosy in the United States is really quite rare, the maximum, what I've understood, is that there's maybe 100 cases a year, and it usually can be taken care of with antibiotics and such. So we used to make jokes about lepers. I don't know if you did either. You know, the leprosy guy who played hockey and had the face off in the corner or that kind of thing. Or what do you call two lepers in a hot tub, you know, stew or, you know, we would sing that song, leprosy, I'm only half the man I used to be. There's a gooey gun call over me. Okay. So we had all these jokes about leprosy, not realizing the stigma and what it meant to people. And then I went to India and traveled on a train outside of Calcutta to a a little town called Titagar. And along the railroad track in Titagar, there was a colony set up by Mother Teresa and her sisters of charity for people who had leprosy. And we went to this colony, and, and the people who were taking us there said, don't look at them like animals in a zoo. These are people. They have been rejected by their families. They're not allowed to go back to their villages. They can't have jobs. They, they can't have anything. But what we have here is a chance for them to have dignity, to be a part of a community, to, to, to have a purpose. And the best thing that you can do while you visit here today is to touch them. Because people won't touch them. They're seen as cursed. They're outcasts. And at first we were a little, I was a little skittish. All that I would heard about leprosy and, and, and these people. and. So I said, well, let's, let's do this. At the time, some of you remember uh, Bob Saylor was our missions director at that time. Bob got this bottle of lotion and there's these gnarled hands and these feet that are all stumps and these eyes that are not there. And, I mean, it, 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 visually, it was, it was pretty appalling. He got in there and he just started rubbing their stumps with this lotion. And Bob, he would talk to them. Not, they can't understand a word he said he just talk, talk, talk. Oh, that feels good. Yeah, you got those great glasses. He'd just be talking to them all the time, just touching them to show them that they are worthy of a human touch. Naaman finds out he's got leprosy, usually started as just a white spot on their skin. Which is a bummer if you own restaurants in British Columbia. But regardless, that, that has nothing to do with it. Maybe just a white spot. And he sees this white spot and he knows this is leprosy. He knows that his life, his family, his future hangs in the balance of this disease. Because as it spreads, he will not be able to be a part of the army anymore. He will not be able to be a part of his village anymore. He won't even be able to be with his family to, to kiss his wife, to hold his kids. Everything will be gone for him. And when he discovers that he has leprosy, his wife, Mrs. Naaman, we'll call her, has a, a servant girl who is Jewish. She was from Israel. And she speaks up and says, tell him to go to Samaria. There's a man of God. There's a prophet who can heal him. So, well, what, what's... The harm in trying this. So Naaman goes to the king of Aram and says, hey, we've heard this. And the king says, by all means, go. In fact, let me send some clothes with you and some silver and some gold. We'll pay this guy if he can heal you. And so Naaman goes back to Israel and he goes to the king, not to the man of God in Samaria. He goes to the king and the king tears his clothes, and says, why do you come to me with this? Do you think I'm God? You think I can heal you? I can't. You're trying to pick a fight with us. And then Elisha, Here's of all this. Verse 8, Elisha says this. Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Let him come to me. I, I'm the one that this little girl spoke of. So in verse 9, so Naaman went with his horses and chariots. He's got a whole entourage. He's got all of these clothes and all this gold and silver that he's going to give. Goes with these horses and these chariots and stops at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Very clear. There's a remedy for this. There's no uncertainty here, there's no ambiguity. It's not even a difficult task. Elisha sends someone out and just says, Here's the word go to the Jordan. Dip yourself seven times, and it's all done. Great. I mean, this is it. I mean, his his whole life can be restored. His health, his family, his future, all of that. Verse 11, but Naaman went away angry. Now, wait a second, Naaman. You traveled all this way to hear from this guy who can possibly heal you, and he tells you what to do, and you go away angry. And then we find out why he's angry. He went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me. You know, he sends a messenger. So he's all hurt about this. There's some pride involved with this. He goes to see this man of God, and the man of God sends out a messenger, one of his little valets, a a servant. Like, doesn't he know who I am? I'm Naaman. I am this celebrated warrior. I'm this valiant, you know, this uh, soldier. I'm Naaman, and you're sending out this little slave guy to tell me this? Uh, who? Not only that, he says, I thought he would surely come out to me and, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. I mean, I hear he's a man of God. Surely he would pray for me. That's how this should happen, right? Shouldn't he call on Yahweh like in my midst and have Yahweh's power and, and how this should happen? And, and not on, to- on top of that, uh, maybe he could do some dramatics, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. He's angry, because Elisha doesn't come to him, sent the wrong person, doesn't say the right words, doesn't do the right actions. This is not what he was expecting. And on top of all of that, the Jordan River? I mean, look what he says. He says, Are not Abana and Farfpah, the rivers of Damascus better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? I mean, seriously? We've got better rivers in Damascus. Now, Up in the north above the Sea of Galilee, when the snows of Mount Hermon are are melting and the springs are are flowing, the waters of the Jordan River in the far north are clear and cold and clean and abundant. Then it pours into the Sea of Galilee, and then it comes out of the Sea of Galilee, and it goes into the Jordan Valley. And as it goes down through the Jordan Valley, those waters begin to change. This is in Samaria, a little closer down toward the Sea of Galilee. And at that point, the Jordan River... It's not clean and cold and beautiful and pure. It's muddy and slow moving. Not the greatest river. He says, we got way better rivers in Damascus. Why would I, why would I go to the Jordan River? So says, he turned and went off in a rage, Old Testament road rage right here, angry. He's gone, not doing this. He has a servant with him, and the servant says, what if the man of God would have met with you and told you to do some extraordinary thing, some difficult task, wouldn't you have done it? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Of course he would have. If he said, I want you to, I want you to scale the cliff and get the the egg of a raven and eat the raw yolk, or whatever it was i mean that's that's my part that's what's not really in the bible but he says if he asked you to do something huge difficult great wouldn't you have done it then what's the harm in doing this simple thing that he's asked you to do maybe it'll work and fortunately for naaman he listened to the unsolicited wisdom of his servant And he went to the Jordan River. Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. Now, this is my guess. Speculation on my part. My guess is that the healing that happens was not progressive. My guess is that he doesn't dip himself once in the Jordan River and go, "Hey, it looks a little better. Second time, oh, it's still going good. Third time, keeps improving. I don't think that was the case at all. I think my guess is Naaman goes, and he's still not real happy about this, goes to this chocolate milk-looking river, he's like, here we go, dips himself once in and thinks, this is the worst river in the world, I'm probably going to come out with more diseases than I had going into it, I'm going to need all kinds of antibiotics after dipping in this crazy river, goes and dips in a second time, like I hope no one's looking, because who would ever bathe in this nasty old river? Dips in a third time, and he just thinks to himself, this makes no sense whatsoever. If it's just about dipping seven times, I could do that anywhere. Why here? Dips in the fourth time. Now he's halfway through. He says, this is a total waste of time. Why do I keep doing this? Goes and he dips in in the fifth time and says, this is so stupid. The servants think it's five, come two more. Dips in the sixth time. No change. This isn't working. Why would I do this? But he dips in the seventh time. And his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. What if? What if he would have stopped at six? What if he didn't give full obedience? What if he didn't listen to the servant boy? What if he didn't follow through what the man of God said? So I think, and this is a great lesson for us, we may not understand until we obey. We want all the answers, all the questions answered, we want all the reasons why, we want all the logical stuff kind of dispelled, we want all that, but we may not understand until we obey. And Bill Johnson said, it's in the obedience that we gain the understanding. Andy Stanley said it in a way that's a little more catchy. He said, to understand why, submit and apply. Now, let me take some of you back, I mean way back, to the original Karate Kid. We're talking way back. Some of you remember the original Karate Kid with Daniel-san and Mr. Miyagi. And Mr. Miyagi has him put, wax on, wax on. I was <laughs> like, some of you are doing this right now, you know. Paint up, paint down, big boards left hand, little boards right hand, up, down, wax on, wax on. He did not understand. It doesn't make sense to him. This is stupid. Why are you doing this? And what he did not realize was what he didn't understand, what didn't seem to make sense, which seemed like a waste of time, was all preparing him for the benefit, i.e., the blessing that would come in obedience. Naaman discovered that. Second story, second story is in the New Testament, it's with Simon, Simon Peter. Simon, before he's officially a disciple of Jesus, Simon is a fisherman. Uh, he's from a little fishing village on the northern side of Galilee called Bethsaida. He and his brother Andrew, they've got some friends, James and John, they've all been fishing. Probably their father's fish, probably their grandfather's fish. They had done this their whole life. This was their life. They were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They had done this. They knew how to fish these waters. They knew where to fish these waters. They knew all the seasons. They knew it all. They had done this their whole life. And one day they had been fishing as was their custom. This day hadn't been the most successful day, and so they're cleaning their nets and such. Jesus, who is not a fisherman, who's not from Bethsaida, who's from Nazareth, who spent his life building chairs and tables and such, houses, and he's a carpenter. But now he's kind of this rabbi that people are coming to hear, and he comes and he's speaking and all these people are crowding around, and Jesus says to Peter, hey, can we get in your boat because these people are pushing in? And they do. And he begins to teach them these truths. And at the end of the sermon, in Luke chapter 5, verse 4, it says this, when he, that's Jesus, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. What I love about this, what Jesus said, is put out your nets for a catch. He doesn't say, hey, Simon, we're going to go fishing. He says, we're going to go catching. Big difference. Some of you know that. We're going to go catching. He says, don't put down your nets and let's fish. He says, put down your nets for a catch. Sounds great. I mean, Jesus would be the best fishing partner ever, I'm supposing. Only one problem. Simon says, this isn't how it works around here. I mean, all due respect, you're a great teacher, but you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. I grew up on these waters. And we fish with nets, and these are shallow water nets. And you're telling me to put out in the deep. Our nets don't work in deep water. They're not created for deep water. They are created for shallow water. And the deep water is not where we fish here. That's not the most productive way. It's when the fish come into the shallows that we net them with our shallow water nets. And we don't do this during the day. We do it at night because everyone knows, everyone who fishes, all due respect, everyone knows it's at night when they come in the shallow waters. And you're telling us to go in the deep water where our nets don't even work. And I'm just telling you today, the fish aren't here. It happens. There's schools. They come, they go. Some days they're here, some days they're not. Today they're not here. Every reason in the book, every logical reason backs up with history, with his knowledge, with what everybody else does. He can back all kinds of reasons not to do what Jesus has said. And then Simon makes the second greatest statement he ever made in the three years he was with Jesus. Uh, the first greatest time that thing that he ever said was when they were at of Philippi and he says, you know, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus basically said, yeah, you didn't come up with that one on your own. But it was the best thing he ever said. The second best thing he ever said was this seven-word phrase, and I don't know if he even realized how empowering and how impactful and how important this phrase was when he said it, because he has every reason in the world not to go out in deep waters and let down his It makes perfect sense to not do that, but he says these words, and these are the words I want us to hold on to. But because you say so, I will. But because you say so, I will. Will you read those words with me out loud? But because you say so, I will. Can you read it a little louder with me? (laughs) But because you say so, I will what if what if that was our default mode what would that what if that was always our first response to god's word to the commands of jesus to the nudgings of the holy spirit what if our first response was not well but that doesn't make sense and and god we've never done it that way and jesus no one else does this and people won't understand what if our first response is i don't get this but because you say so i will This doesn't make a lick of sense to me. It's illogical. But because you say so, I will. My friends are going to look at me like I'm crazy. But because you say so, I will. That day in the boat, Simon had every reason not to obey Jesus. But because you say so, I will. He didn't even believe. Because you say so, I will let down my shallow water net in the deep waters that we use at night in the broad sunny daylight in front of all my friends because you say so I will. Can you imagine his brother? Simon, what are you doing? Uh, stuff. <laughs> and then he begins to pull and he's like, oh, add insult to injury, it's snagged on some, some submerged log. It's, it's heavy. He's pulling it up getting that caught a log. But then he sees a flash and a movement and more. And as he pulls it up, "But because you say so, I will let down the nets." And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive of the things that the Lord has prepared. And maybe, just maybe, the reason that God calls us to be obedient is because there's a blessing on the other side of obedience. The third story is our highest example. Naaman learned it. Simon experienced it. Jesus modeled it. On the darkest night of his life, he's in the garden, preparing to not just take on the sins of the world, but to become the sins of the world and to take on all of the wrath and the punishment for those sins. Anguish to the point of sweating drops of blood. Pleading with God, if there's any other way, please take this bitter cup from me. But not my will. Your will be done. Like if you say so, I will. And a few hours later, as he's hanging on the cross, and he cries out with this question My God, my God, why? Why? Why would you forsake me? And he asks these questions. No explanation is promised. God doesn't say, Well, let me spell this out for you. Let me explain this to you. None is promised. And no explanation is required. Because you say so, I will. And I love that passage in Philippians 2. Where it says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp. Made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And then in verse 8, it says this And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And there's a part of us right now that wouldn't say it out loud, but in my reminder saying, that's why. That's why I don't want to be obedient. Because if I'm obedient to God's word, to the commands of Jesus, to the nudgings of the Holy Spirit, it's going to put to death my fun. It's going to put to death the, the plans I have for my life. It's going to put to death my dreams. It's going to put to death this life that I'm putting together. And you know what I'd say? maybe you're right and maybe on the other side of your dead plans for your life you'll find god's plan for your life on the other side of your dream that has died you'll find the dream that god created you to pursue on the other side of the life that you feel like has been taken from you you'll discover the life. You were always intended to live and experience. Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse nine, it says, therefore, therefore, because he was obedient, because he said, because you say so, I will, because he didn't have to understand it all, because he didn't need explanations for it all. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That blessing was on the other side of obedience. And that whole passage starts off in verse 5, where it says, Oh, and by the way, your attitude, virtues, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So here's the challenge. If you're willing in your life, because we are incrementally trying to become more like Christ, maybe identify one step and apply one phrase. Identify what is one step of obedience that God is calling you to and one phrase, but because you say so, I will. You may not have to understand it. You may not like it. You may not agree with it, but say, you know what? If God, if this is what you say, I will do it. And I don't know what that one step is. Maybe the, uh, that one step of obedience is to be baptized or to start tithing or, or to break out of that relationship that's unhealthy or, or to stop that habit or that business practice or, or to ask for forgiveness or to grant some forgiveness. I don't know what that step is. But to identify that step and to say these words, Because you say so, I will. There's blessing on the other side of obedience. I'm just going to tell you this, and then I'll I'll promise I'll be done. This is what I want for my life. I I want my, my, my posture to always be, God, the answer is yes. Now, what was the question again? God, the answer is yes. So what was the instruction again? I'm not always there. I'm just telling you, I want this. I want to be able to say, but because you say so. I will, as we have this beauty of becoming more like Christ. Okay, i got to stop. I've been going too long. Hey, are those of you online, I'm going to turn you over to Pastor Kip. will be with you in just a minute.